here. This is the most important question of the day. How many times have you, Jordan Bonner, 1,000-point scorer, NESCAC Defensive Player of the Year, etc., how many times have you beaten me in a game of horse? Wow! second episode of the Scholar Spotlight podcast. Today, we have on a very special guest and new colleague of mine, Jordan Bonner. Jordan graduated from St. Andrews School in 2015 and made his way to Wesleyan University, where he majored in psychology and played on the men's basketball team. After graduating from West in 2019, Jordan went to the University of Cambridge and earned his master's degree in psychology and education. A former student and advisor at Delaware College Scholars, Jordan will be our summer program director, community liaison, and college persistence officer for the upcoming school year. We talk about his journey at St. Andrews, the challenges of being a student of color and navigating predominantly white spaces, and how he plans to create more equitable educational opportunities for students of color. Let's rock. What's up, brother? What's up, man? How you doing? Good. Uh, let's dive right in. How does a kid from Houston, Texas, find his way to Middletown, Delaware for high school? It's a really good question, Jake, and a question I've been asked a lot in my life. You know, people were so surprised that I went to boarding school. They thought I got in trouble, or like my mom was sending me off, uh, so to be away for school because I was, you know, a troubled kid. Um, but that's not the case at all. I actually wanted to go um, to boarding school. Um, my The summer of my seventh grade year, um, I did a summer program uh, at Deerfield. It's another renowned boarding school. And I loved it. Like the idea of being away, being able to study and meet kids from all over the world. I was like, man, this is something that um, I could really buy into. And so I was hooked, and um, I applied. Uh, Deerfield didn't end up working out, but St. Andrews um, was, I mean, I got accepted. And so that was definitely an opportunity I pursued, and that's how I ended up in, you know, Middletown, Middletown, Delaware, of all places. So, As someone that lived 12 minutes away from campus and cried every night or so for the first month <laughs> of my freshman year, um, like, I was very nervous and scared, but, like, you had no reservations about – moving thousands of miles away from home. Yeah, no. And, th- and that shocks people because it's like, what? Like, why would you go? Like, I couldn't, like, they say the same thing that you said. Like, I've been, you know, in my city or state my entire life. Like, how could you just up and leave? And, um, there, okay, I will say there were times where I missed my mom and my family. But St. Andrews did a good job of keeping you busy, you know? So I didn't really think about it too much. Um, I still talked every day, but I was like, I was excited to be on my own and like, you know, manage my own money and go to sleep when I, like, I don't know. I think it really helped me to be more independent. So it was, yeah, it's a, it's bizarre, but I really embraced it. Yeah. That's still, that's still so crazy to me. Um, so, so let's get into as a black teenager coming into predominantly white institution like St. Andrews. What types mm-hmm. of racial stressors did you encounter? 
really good question. Um, and you're making me reflect on those times and I've tried to, you know, that I've tried not to think about, um, cause at the moment, in the time at, or at the time, I didn't really know what was happening, you know, like, so prior to coming to St. Andrews, I was in a predominantly African-American and Latino, uh, school and not to say that, you know, didn't have prejudice or anything like that, but we all had pretty similar experiences. And so when I came to St. Andrews, I was shocked to see that, you know, I was for the first time, you know, a minority and I didn't really know how to deal with some of those conversations and experiences. For instance, there was one time we were listening to um, a rap song and, you know, in a lot of rap music, people say the N word. Sure. And I was, I had two white roommates and they said it, uh, multiple times without hesitation. And I'm like, okay, this doesn't feel right. Like, you know, I knew something was off, but I didn't feel comfortable telling them that it was wrong. And that internal dilemma, like, I'm like, dang, you're my friend, like one of my closest friends for that. But you're also using this derogatory word that has so much just trauma and history. Like, I don't know, like, of oppressing my people, you know, I just... I didn't, yeah, I didn't have the confidence to really say, say anything. Um, so it was subtle comments like that, microaggressions. And like, as I got older, you know, I developed the vocabulary and stuff to be able to, you know, put words to those, uh, to describe those experiences. Um, but at the time, you know, uh, those racial stressors and things, I, I knew it was happening, but I didn't really know how to really explain it and in that moment specifically you're worried about hey like if i stand up and say something here what does that do to our friendship like because Mm -hmm. like you just didn't feel empowered in those moments to stand up to your peers absolutely i mean it was like i would further marginalize myself right like think about it a black kid like in this new space i needed friends i was a people pleaser too um so i'm like okay i need it um, some sort of community. And I found these people, I was like, dang, they're cool. Even though they don't look like me, I'm like, dang, they're really just nice people. Um, and so I didn't want to further isolate myself. I wanted to still belong. Um, so yeah, it was, it was tough. How did faculty mentors and alumni like Stacy Dupre and Treva Milton help you in these moments when you didn't necessarily, necessarily feel empowered to stand up to your peers? Instrumental. They were instrumental, and I will forever be indebted to them because without them, I don't know if I would have stayed at St. Andrews. Um, a sense of belonging, having a sense of belonging, is so important, especially for uh, minority students coming into a space um, that's predominantly um, white and where you're the minority, because um, you need some sort of community and support and just some kind of some guidance on how to navigate those spaces. I didn't really know. Um, I know my mom told me that the idea of like code switching, you know, so being able to kind of be a chameleon and adapt in different spaces. I couldn't be like the, the hood Jordan now was in Houston. Like I had to, you know, represent myself. So getting sort of 
that knowledge and being, you know, um, just being, what's the word? Just explain what the game was, you know, because they had, they had, they had been playing it for a while. So they, you know, they provided that support, but they also told me, you know, um, it's how you should act, it's how you shouldn't act. They just kind of just told me how, how to really behave and, um, so I could be successful, you know. From the outside looking in, right, it seems like from your freshman to your senior year, you became comfortable uh, navigating these spaces. You're a residential leader. You're a thousand-point scorer. You're a basketball captain. You have a lot of friends in the St. Andrews community. But I have to ask, did you ever feel totally comfortable in these spaces? No, not until I got to my senior year, I would say. And like like you said, you see the accolades and the positions that I had. And you could think that, oh, yeah, he must have really adapted well. And I became like the token, you know, uh, SAS kid. I mean, I know you could relate to that, relate to that too. We both uh, received the St. Andrew's Cross, which basically means that you embody a lot of the characteristics um, and traits and attributes and all the stuff that a model St. Andrean should have. So from the outside looking in, yeah, it seemed like I, I had it figured out, but I didn't. I went through a lot of identity crises because I didn't really know. I didn't even know myself, you know. And so I had a, a facade the entire, a lot of the times. Um, and I just wanted to belong. I think that's what it, that's what it was. Um, and it was hard to really stay true to myself without conforming. And I think throughout the first three years, in addition to battling some of the academic barriers and other social barriers, like that just right. that's added on top of the cake. But um but yeah, it really it wasn't really until my last year um where I was like, dang, okay, I can I can do both. I can be who I am as a black male and navigate this space successfully, you know? And uh, I felt a bit a bit more comfortable um, towards the end. But, and, well, and, and towards yeah. the end, did you feel also like a bit of responsibility to help younger students of color at St. Andrews? Absolutely. Absolutely. I knew that I had people up ahead of me when I was a freshman who kind of paved the way and I aspired to be where they were. And so when I got there, I was like, yeah, Jordan, you got to pay it for it. You have to do whatever you can to make sure that their experiences are better than are better than yours. You know, so I didn't want them to go through anything that I had to go through if I could help it, you know, and I used to get teased a lot because I was like, I would spend time with the freshmen more than my class sometimes. So I'm right. like, man, like, I'm like, those are my guys, you know? So, like, Jelani and um, and, and Roger and all those, yeah, all those, uh, all those freshmen. I remember just having movie nights and all that stuff and telling them, hey, this is what you need to do um, so that you can, so that you can uh, stride or stride. Yeah. Uh, taking this sort of a turn to part of your work with DCS and helping students navigate 
not only like the college process and getting into college, but also their college experience. Um, for a lot of our black and brown uh, DCS scholars, they, they face this challenge of navigating a white spaces for the first time when they enter college. So what advice would you give them? I mentioned this before, and I think it applies in this situation, but it's about finding your community. And I know that's a cliche and it's hard to do sometimes, but I think when you are coming to those spaces, it's very important for you. And it, it doesn't mean that you only hang out with a certain group of people, but I do think you need to find people who are, who are like-minded in the sense that they share some of your kind of experience or at least can relate to. So that way you don't feel so alone. You know what I mean? Um, so whether it's, going to your diversity and inclusion officer because most universities do have those now um or finding an affinity group something like that i think it's vital because i think for me it allowed me to adapt um and be successful in those spaces you know i had you know the basketball team at st andrews and same thing in college um and i was a part of another group called invisible men which was for all black males so I found those spaces um, or those communities really early. And even if I didn't always utilize them, I knew that they were there. And I think that's important. You just need to know that they're there. Um, so that if you are in a situation, you're not handling it alone. You have some people who can, you know, so uh, who can who can provide that support. So that's what I would that's what I would get to give the advice to students, especially earlier, earlier on. Um, to find, yeah, to find, find that community. In your role, especially as a community liaison and developing community partnerships uh, at Delaware College Scholars with other organizations throughout the state, what's your plan to try and create equitable educational opportunities for students of color? Yeah, I think part of my role as community liaison is to connect students with or to start to foster strategic partnerships with different organizations and networks to essentially increase students' social capital. And so what I mean by social capital is the idea that, okay, a lot of times, especially like the dominant group or majority group, they have networks already embedded, like, you know, or just it's inherent, you know, um, you know, if you need an internship, that your dad may golf with somebody and they could be like, oh, like in real estate. And they're like, oh, would you be able to help my son out, you know, with the internship this summer or something like that? And then you have that experience and you build your social capital and your network, et cetera. So I think it's about helping our students who may not have that um, earlier on in the educational pipeline. Um, and so if somebody's interested in medicine, um, connecting them with Christiana Care, but not just because you don't know what you don't know. So a lot of kids aspire to just be a doctor, but there's so many other fields, you know, and you you, you know uh, you know personally too in your life, um, people who are like APRNs, you know, or registered nurse, any different field that you can, you know, you can pursue that you may just not have had exposure to. And then secondly, maybe showing kids or trying to find leaders who look like them. 
so that they can inspire you. I think visibility is important. Um, and so if you see an African-American woman in a leader, senior, senior leadership position, you know, at a hospital or something like that, then you'll be like, dang, okay, I can, I can do that. I can, I can see myself there. So I think those are kind of my two um, kind of ideas that I'm, that I'm looking to push uh, this year in my role. You're a phenomenal podcast guest because you just lead yeah. me right into my next questions. Um, <laughs> but I, I would say, because I, I was about to ask, just how critical do you think it is for you know a young black and brown students to see people that look like them in leadership positions? But then, because you sort of answered that and its importance, do you think, because it is important and you believe in that, do you think that has inspired you to work in education so that students of color can look at somebody like you and see you and your leadership positions and the impact that uh, you're continuing to try to make on them? Yes, absolutely. I think it's also, it's also, it's also been important for me to share my story, you know, and I think having this role now, I'm able to work directly with kids and explain to them because they may just see, okay, Jordan Bonner, he went to Wesleyan, he went to Cambridge, he did all of this stuff. And like, okay, dang, he's the exception, like to sort of the standard. He can't, you know, I can't do that. But when I'm able to work with them one-on-one and that's where I thrive. When I get that, those one-on-one conversations or small group settings, I can explain to them like, no, like we have more in common than you think. Um, And just be able to kind of break down some of the, break, those barriers um, and any kind of preconceived notion that they have and let them know like, Hey, like you can, um, you can aspire and want greater for yourself and for your family. Um, And I'm kind of proof on why you're able, why you can, why you can do, why you can do that. No doubt. Um, Transitioning to our mad minute segment, which is just (sighs) short answer questions, rapid fire, uh, Michael Jordan or LeBron James. LeBron James. (laughs) Favorite DCS memory? I would say last summer when we all were on the front lawn uh, chasing each other with uh, water guns. That was was pretty fun. Most influential teacher mentor? I'm going to go with Eric Hutchison. Okay. Favorite song? Uh, Live Like You Were Dying by Tim McGraw. (laughs) Great. Uh, Favorite meal? Spaghetti bolognese with garlic bread and a side salad. First job. I don't even know if I count this, but I worked for this uh, finance company, uh, Bari Financial Group. Hidden talent. I mean, I've been told that I have a voice of a thousand songbirds, but, um, but I will say bowling. Yeah. Uh, in 10 years, I will be CEO of my own company or executive director of a nonprofit. And last one here. This is the most important question of the day. How many times have you, Jordan Bonner, 1,000 point scorer, NESCAC defensive player of the year, etc., how many times have you beaten me in a game of horse? Wow. <laughs> Um, I don't know if I want to go on air and say that, but I have not beat Jake in a game of horse. All right, fine. You're just going to expose me, but you got it. 
<laughs> My last two questions, same two questions to every guest. Ring the bell. Podcast is almost over. What is your why? I would say my mom is my why. I amount of sacrifice that she's made for me and my family. Yeah, I know that without her, I wouldn't be in the position that I am. And and I think with that, with just observing her selflessness, it's made it's it motivates me on a day to day to pay it for especially for especially for kids who don't have who don't have the same opportunities or didn't have the same opportunities that I've had to pay it for to increase their access and to just make a difference in their lives any way that I any way that I can. Um, and so it's through her, through her sacrifice her selflessness that I'm able to keep pushing forward. Even when I face adversity, um, I look at her and, um, and she, yeah, she gives me the strength to keep moving in addition to God too, but my mother for sure. And last question, what's one piece of advice you would give your 16 year old self? I would tell my 16 year old self to, Continue to practice the pause. And what I mean by that is there are going to be moments when you're angry, you're frustrated, or you want to react very quickly, where situations are emotionally charged. And sometimes you just need to pause. Or a lot of times, just pause and really recollect yourself before you respond. Think when I was younger and, you know, more immature. Um, I kind of just based a lot of my decisions and the way I behave off of my emotions and then just kind of allow those to direct me. Whereas if I would have paused and really just taken a second to think, um, I could have saved myself a lot of, uh, it's a lot of issues, but I don't know. I don't, I don't regret any of the things I've been through, but I think it is important to, um, be slow tempered you know, and to, yeah, practice the pause and continue to extend grace to people, so. All right, man. Well, I appreciate you hopping on the Scholar Spotlight podcast, and, uh, yeah, that's it, and we'll continue to do some great work this year together, and uh, we'll talk soon, all right? All right, bro. Thank you, man.